Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. <laughs> you said the beer is appropriately cold, but this is British beer, right? Shouldn't it be warm? It's inappropriately you know, I, cold. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well. I'm sorry. I never liked brown ale warm. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. I, I can remember one day when I was parched, and that's all they had, hot brown ale. In, was this in, in Great Britain? Yeah. 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 Stevenage. And, and as an American, you don't complain about that. Mm. Yeah. I do like the, 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 the pull taps, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that mm-hmm. it's not carbonated, but the, mm-hmm. the ale itself, I'm not a huge fan. All right. So what is your last name? I use Norwood. Norwood. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. So I'm here in beautiful Topanga Canyon with Ginger Norwood, who is um, the mother of a good friend of mine, former landlady, actually. <laughs> no, no, he was my landlady. Um, who I've been uh, hoping to get a chance to interview for a long time. And I'm really glad that you've agreed to do this. Thank you. You're most welcome. So, um, you know, the reason I, I wanted to to talk with you is that, well, I know you've had uh, a long and interesting career in technology. You're, you're uh, sort of a trailblazer and as being one of the first women who's really uh, excelled in that world of, uh, of mathematics and technology. I think uh, Nomi told me, you were what was it? You were the first woman to ever teach at uh, UC USC USC in yeah. the mathematics department. Is no, it was an engineering engineering right. circuits circuitry. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. right. So, um, if if you're willing, can we start like talk just talking about your parents? Because I've got the sense that your parents were pretty interesting people. Well, my father was an army officer in the Signal Corps. Mm-hmm. And he had an engineering degree. He came in from civil life, not West Point. Uh-huh. My mother was the daughter of an army officer, so we have a long lineage that way. Spent my childhood pretty much traipsing around, I'd say, living places an average three years per place. You're an army brat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was mm-hmm. in the 30s? Right. I was born in 27. 27. And I left home for college in 45, mm-hmm. 44. 44. So tumultuous years. You're, so you sort of came to consciousness in the Depression, more or less. Yes. Somewhere in there. And it didn't hit us a great deal because... Right. Army officers had a small but regular salary. Right. Did, were you aware of what was going on when you were 8, 9, 10 years old? I was occasionally. For example, I can remember going downtown to pick up an aunt who had come in, is this Pittsburgh, who had come into town to visit us, and we picked her up at the bus station, and something had happened, and there were crowds of people on the sidewalk 
ju- they seemed to be sullen at the time, but now I think they were just completely dispirited, mm. standing there looking. And that's a view I have, but I didn't. It didn't impinge on us much. Yeah, yeah. But you you mm-hmm. sensed that something wasn't right. And I was aware of the WPA, and I knew what, why it had been formed. Ah, right, right. So you were living. Mm-hmm. You said you moved around a lot. Was that primarily in the U.S.? Yes. Uh, also, I spent a couple of years in Panama. Ah. Thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, mm-hmm. and. Uh, <clears throat> then at the outbreak of the war, I was in Bermuda. In Bermuda, which was lovely. Yeah. What were you doing? Or do you know what your father was doing in these places? Sure. Um, you may remember the lease lend arrangement that uh, yeah. Roosevelt had. Yeah. In which, um, of course, he wanted us very much to get into the war and help England, and. Um, Prior to that, he wanted to give them money and supplies, and so they made an arrangement for a great sum of money, and uh, in return, we were able to put uh, posts on several islands, Uh Bermuda, Trinidad, uh, Nova Scotia, somewhere up there there was one, too. And these are sort of like watching for U-boats or something, or or ships? yeah, wa- watching for ships that might attack the U.S. Right. Bermuda right. is the most isolated part in the world. Really? People don't realize more that. More Easter Island? Yes, because wow. those islands in the Pacific have other islands near. Ah. Uh, Bermuda is 700 miles off Cape Hatteras, due west. People think of it as being in the Bahamas, but it's not. Or do... do it just stuck up there all by itself in the middle of the ocean. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. So how old were you when you were there? I was in the fifth form. <laughs> the so you were in the British 41, system. 14. Oh, okay. So you were fully conscious. You, oh, you sort of very knew what was going so. on in the world yes. then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're living. That must have been really interesting mm-hmm. and beautiful. Were you swimming every day? Was, you know, um, were not you a, so wild, much that. a wild child? <laughs> No, I was a I was a very well behaved child. <laughs> Did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Ah, so you had to be responsible and quite. Yeah. yeah. Then, uh, then there were only only bicycles and uh, carriages for on the, the on the island. No island, cars. no cars were oh. allowed. Oh. And the roads were were white coral. Oh, and, uh, right. It was just. Charming Beautiful. and picturesque, and yeah. my mother and I almost drowned the boat with our tears when we were ordered back. <laughs> they they ordered us back after Pearl Harbor uh, because of security concerns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they ordered all the families out. What exactly was the Signal Corps? What was that? Was communications right? Was it, yeah, my father set up the first radar. In Bermuda. Really? Yeah. Ah, as part of this watching for enemy ships right. project, I guess. Right. And he, he and planes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. He he got a um the equipment all came and he was to be a little snobbish, coming in from a civilian school, he was a much better engineer than a lot of the the officers. Right. And um they set up all this equipment this radar 
bed springs they called them because they were they were flat mm. not not the dishes of not the higher the dishes, frequencies right. and they were fixed i imagine they weren't they weren't spinning no they oh <laughs> <Pardon> <laughs> you got some gesticulation right we turned around well that's good <clears throat> uh, uh, anyhow he got it uh, all together and he said it did everything except track airplanes uh-oh and uh he was able to go look at the at the schematics and figured out that it had been wired uh, just high out of phase or 180 uh, degrees out of phase. Oh. Uh, so he... An easy fix. Fixed that and everything worked fine. Uh, ah, yeah. beautiful. So, okay, so then he pulled, they, they were pulled, or all of you were pulled back to... No, just just the families. Oh, okay. The men stayed. Oh, so your father stayed. Oh, yes. Oh, he he I stayed see. another couple of years. Ah, oh. and where did where were you sent? To a well, base somewhere. not sent. No, we we were on our own. So we oh. we went back to New England and um, went to Essex, Connecticut. <clears throat> oh. Rentals were not easy to find in those days in that part of the country. Yeah, and we found this three uh, hundred year old house that we lived in all during the war. Uh, is Essex on the water? Essex is on the Connecticut River. On the river, oh, okay. It's up the river from the um, outlet, uh, 10 miles maybe. Uh, yeah. I lived in Fairfield for a while as a kid. Fairfield's near... Westport. <sighs> yeah, yes. It's, down, it's on the water, Westport, Fairfield. Yeah. Yeah, now, this is just Bridgeport. up from where Don's daughter lives, Saybrook. Oh, right. <clears throat> okay, the famous Saybrook. I, I went uh-huh. to Saybrook Graduate School, which is uh, named after a famous meeting that took place there. Oh, really? Yeah, but it's in California. It's in San Francisco, but it's called I've Saybrook. I've never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. This it was a, a meeting that that essentially established the the discipline now known as humanistic psychology. Oh, so really? Was, I think it was in the 40s or the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Abraham Maslow and oh, Carl yeah. Rogers and those, yes, those people yes, got together. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we we both uh, we both know Connecticut. It's a nice mm-hmm. place. Oh, I bicycled all over it. Yeah, and you were in good shape too after Bermuda. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you uh, okay? So did you go to high school there? Then you finished high school in Connecticut. No, <clears throat> my father came back, and. Uh, I spent my last year, my senior year, in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Ah. Oh. And uh, liked it very much, actually. We were talking about posts once, or places of living, I think, yeah. it was when first went to Oklahoma. And uh, I said, well, I like it here in defense, because somebody had made some derogatory remarks. And my father said, Oh, Ginger, you like any place. <laughs> he was, he was a re- clearly a weakness in his mind. <laughs> He'd rather have you complaining about mm-hmm. every place he dragged you to? I'm no, not sure. I, I don't think he thought of it that way, but yeah. he just thought it was lack of imagination uh, or something. Yeah, discernment. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay, then you, were, you finished high school in Germantown. Germantown, right. Yeah, okay. And I should mention, by the way, just as, a, as an aside, um, <laughs> <laughs> for this, because Ginger has a clock collection, and you don't, I'm wearing headphones, so you don't notice. But the when oh, the clocks go through. off, you can really hear. Yeah. So yeah. for people in the audience who are saying, "What what are all those bells ringing?" And yeah. There's oh. a clock collection, so you'll hear those. I don't keep them all wound anymore. 
but most of them in this room are. And how many clocks are there in this room, do you know? I think they're about 15. There's, there's some real beauties. Yeah, yeah, They're not all chiming. Have you read, uh, what's the book called, Longitude? Yes. Uh, yeah, I've never read that. I'd like to. It Deva, seems very interesting. Deva, forgotten her last name, starts with a P. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about the invention of accurate right. clocks, right? Yeah. 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 Which as an engineer, yeah. I imagine must be very interesting for you. That well oh, that yeah. is that why you're interested in clocks, the engineering of them? The I like all the aspects, but particularly the mechanics. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh the, the woman that wrote that book uh gave a I went to a symposium that we put on at Caltech uh, a couple of months ago. Marvelous symposium on time. Mm. And she spoke, uh, She was in charge of one of the sessions. She oh. was the moderator. Is she a good speaker? Yes. Yeah. Very poised. Mm. And she's not technical. Oh, really? Yeah. She got interested because in 93, I think it was, they had another one of these symposia. And uh, she was there. And uh-huh. she was. it was called Longitude. And so really? she was so fascinated by it, she put it together in a book. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so sort of a closing of a loop for her to go back and speak there. That's great. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, okay, I want to I mm-hmm. get to... Uh, okay. You, we're going we're gonna to get to all this technical stuff here. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to like sort of bring mm-hmm. us up slowly so people have an understanding. Um, so you're coming of age during the war. Your father wasn't in great danger, it doesn't sound like. Well, no, then he was. He was in Europe. Oh, really? At the end of the war. I mean, toward the end of the war. So this was when yeah. you were in Pennsylvania? When I was in uh, Germantown, yeah. Yeah. Let me let me get this straight. I have problems with the ears. So do I. No, it was when I was still in Connecticut. And um, so my mother... No, that's not true. Okay, we went back to Connecticut, and um, he was with the 18th Corps in the 9th Army with Montgomery. In North Africa? No, after he was in Europe. Oh. He came up after Africa. Up and through, um, through Italy. My father was in the Ruhr Crossing. Oh, really? Near ba- um, Bastogne. Uh-huh. And... Um, Oh, so he was in danger because that was very vicious. The Baston, I remember. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh No, he has a. uh, He had a couple of medals. Hmm. Not not for being wounded, fortunately. Yeah. 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 And was he traumatized by the experience? Do you think? I don't think ever anything ever fazed my father. Hmm. He was very even. Even tempered, oh, he could he could explode, and, but uh, uh, it was very short lived. Right. And what was and your mother like? My mother was very interested in languages, very good at languages, hmm. which she discovered late in life. And um, she from learned, the travel, like in Panama. Well, or no, during the war we had. Um, a friend from Austria, and so she began to speak German. Mm. And um, then she took up Russian, <laughs> and then she took up Spanish, and then she said, each language gets easier. Yeah. Which 
I can't fathom because yeah. I'm, I'm a complete dullard in languages. Well, I've heard that from people who learn mm-hmm. them learn a few as children, but it's mm-hmm. interesting that she took it up as yeah. an adult and she still felt that effect. She just had effect. a real flair. Yeah, that's that's and, wild. Uh, it makes w- you wonder, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like what capacities we have that we never stumble over. That's true. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very interesting. I've often thought. Now this is. This may be just pure fantasy and ego here, but I sometimes think I would have been a very good or uh, musician, uh, but I just never got into it because I, uh-huh. I feel music so deeply I that I I can't imagine yeah. that if I like got over that learning yeah. curve, you know, got yeah. over that hump, that I wouldn't uh, have a lot to say if I spoke yeah. that language. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, but. I've tried music, and my <clears throat> my feeling is that I have the highest ratio of um, of uh, appreciation to talent. Yeah, that you could <laughs> <That's>, get. <laughs> that's probably where I am, and I'm just kidding myself. <laughs> but I, yeah. I can play a scale on about four instruments, and that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a lot of discipline, so you're not like mm-hmm. me. I'm I'm sort of a bohemian when it comes yeah. to those things. If I'm not having yeah. fun from the beginning, I rarely yeah. pursue it very far. Well, I played the Schiffa Clavier. You know what that is? No. It sounds like a, a keyboard. Oh, it's a, yeah, okay, an accordion. Yeah, that's the yeah. German word. And, and uh, my family friend Kurt had one, so I got one yeah. and uh, played it very badly, <laughs> <laughs> like everything. It's hard to think of a really good accordion player. <laughs> You know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even yeah. if they're good, I'm and not sure you want to hear it. And it's an easy instrument, is it? Yeah, because well, you're playing a keyboard on one side, right? Keyboard, on, a standard keyboard on one side, and then the chords are buttons on the other, so they're done for you. So oh, really? If you can remember which chord to play as you go along, oh. it's really quite so easy if you ha- if you have fine. any talent at all, which I didn't. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's mm-hmm. an expression in Spanish I love, which it, you use when somebody's just bothering you, or they're complaining, or they're you know whatever, and you're trying to say just like leave me alone, shut up, whatever. And the expression is, "Don't play me your bagpipe." <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I happen to be very partial to bagpipes. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> oh well. well you, you ever try to play one? No, yeah. I have not. I, I no, I, I'm sure I couldn't manage There's that. There's something one. sort of noble and beautiful about mm-hmm. them, but only mm-hmm. if they're played like you know on the Scottish steps and the mm. guy's a mile away. If he's in the basement <laughs> I, practicing, I don't think I'd appreciate it. Well, in Bermuda, the Cameron Regiment was stationed there, mm. and uh, every day they would come out going from. I don't know, someplace to another, because they always went by our house. And they would march by twos, and they played bagpipes and drums. Oh. They just had uh, about four musicians at the beginning. Yeah. And then the, all the troops in their in their uh, shorts, their shorts. Oh, I was going to ask if they were wearing kilts. No, the the the, the uh, musicians wore kilts, uh-huh. but the but the not the soldiers. Were in shorts. You're right, That's exactly. Cool. Yeah. Is Ber- Bermuda is what is Bermuda? Is it an independent country or is it no, British it's, it's, protectorate? It was called. It, it was sort of anomalous, but it was. Oh, what's that phrase they have for it? 
same status as the Bahamas and uh, those others. So it's sort of in the Commonwealth somehow. Mm-hmm. But what do yeah. they call it? Pro- Crown Colony. Oh, okay. That's right. what they call it. Right. Uh, I forgot right. the population, but the islands, which are um, on a many many islands, three hundred and six. Everybody has three hundred sixty-five islands in a in a clump of islands. I've found, but that's what they claimed. And anyhow, a whole batch of islands that are uh, look kind of like the top of a volcano. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. Probably what it was. Maybe. Because I remember... Lots of water as a result. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a place... I I don't think it was Bermuda. I think it was in the Bahamas. I just watched... A, I was just watching a 60 Minutes special about these free divers, you know, who dive 200 meters down with no tanks. Oh, You know really? these guys? Yeah. No. And like mm-hmm. one of the deepest holes is on one of the islands in the Bahamas. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I imagine uh-huh. it's because there are volcanic yeah. craters, yeah. you know, so they're that you can go just straight down into them. It's a couple hundred meters, I believe. Oh, I see. Yeah. That, because well, that these guys go right. Yeah. I mean, who knows yeah. how far down the, it actually the deeps goes. in in like the uh, Philippine in the the Marianas deep, Trench that sort of thing. Yeah. They're uh, miles. Yeah. Yeah. Nine no. miles, something like that. Yeah, but I think the reason mm-hmm. they do this is that the water is so clear. And warm. And warm, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> but it must be pretty cold as soon as you get down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so we were mm-hmm. talking about your mother. So she she was uh, a natural linguist. And she was always and, just interested in, in reading. And uh, um, my father always said she was the smartest person he knew. That was an accolade from him. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Was she mathematically inclined as well? No, but she, I can remember uh, coming home and telling her my freshman year some interesting thing that I had uh, learned in physics. And she seemed to latch onto it very quickly. Ah. So I'm inclined to agree with him. Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not, but the friends I have who are very good at language mm-hmm. also tend to be very good at math. I've heard there's a strong correlation. Are there. you good at, at languages? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm a Gegenbeispiel. <laughs> uh, what is that? <laughs> counterexample. Oh, counterexample. Okay. That's German mm-hmm. as well, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So um, so your mother, it sounds like she had the the sort of... Rational. She was certainly, uh, uh, she had a lot of uh, rational capacity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. your father was an engineer mm-hmm. by training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, okay, so now you finish high school and you go off to MIT, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. In, at 17? Yep. Yeah. And this is, so you were born in 27, so this is 44? Right. That's when I was graduating. Wow. So at the, the height of the war. Mm-hmm. So you go to MIT, and what was that like? How many women were there, or what was in the my class? There were thirteen. Out of how many? About a thousand. Thirteen out of a thousand mm-hmm. at MIT, yeah. and at that point, was MIT just technical stuff? You couldn't go there and study literature, or no? Yeah, that's right. Right. So the first time they branched out away from hard sciences was uh, psychology. Hmm. Samuelson, no, it was uh, Samuelson was an economist, but yeah, they didn't have any 
name psychologists, but um, a colleague, uh, not a classmate of mine, later went back and got a doctorate in psychology, and that his was about the first one. Right. So right. it was just after the war they began to right. diversify. Probably to capitalize on the GI Bill a little bit, maybe. All these students coming back. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, yeah. So you're there in 44. Mm -hmm. You're one of 13 girls in the class. Why did you go to MIT? Uh, Presumably, if you were good enough to get into MIT, you could have gone to a lot of places, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, wherever you want. (laughs) A a real school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, not to disparage MIT. My my first husband always referred to it as a trade trade school. A trade school, really? (laughs) (laughs) He he was a Stanford man, and he didn't approve. Oh, I see. He was an instructor there. At uh, MIT. At, oh, he was an instructor at MIT, and mm-hmm. he disparaged it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he, okay. Well, that's an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Is that where you met him? Yes. Ah, so you were a student, and you met your your instructor, right? And and led we to married. Uh, oh, a week after my I was graduated. Really? Yeah. You had to wait till you graduate. I felt so. Yeah. <laughs> my parents were paying for my education. But did so they know seemed... that you had this oh, relationship? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do they approve? In a way, hmm. yeah. Hmm. I, I I suspect uh, they would have been happier if I hadn't gotten married when I was twenty. But uh, although that wasn't that unusual in those days, was it? Yeah, but I think my father had feelings that I would probably get a doctorate and be uh. academic. Oh, right. And he preferred that. and He would have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what did you study in MIT? Math and physics. Math and physics. Was that mm-hmm. like a dual major or did they um, go minor, to... A minor, you'd say, in, ma- in physics. Uh, and what, what is it that attracted you to this? Was it just that you were good It was really all I was good at. Really? Yeah. Did you... No. My daughter, <laughs> Nomi, was good at everything, and yeah. so she had a real problem, but yeah. I never did. I, I was only really good at technical things. And in those in those days, I imagine having that sort of capacity would have been uh, highly valued by society, right? Wasn't it like math mm-hmm. and science that was winning the war and that was, you know... I guess it was some of that. I wasn't really aware of how people felt about it. I was going to say, you you speak of MIT, but it's kind of surprising, not many of the first-line technical schools took women. Hmm. Rensselaer did not, Caltech did not. Really? Yeah, I can't think of uh, another um, first-line technical school it did, so it wasn't so strange that I would apply to MIT. Right. So we think of MIT now, I still think of MIT as a predominantly male uh, kind of place, but you're saying that at the beginning it it was actually cutting edge in terms of accepting women into that world. Well, they were a land-grant school. Oh. And they were required. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And were there any female professors there? Oh, no. Not a single no. female professor. We had a librarian who was a woman. <laughs> really? That was all, yeah. Yeah. So did you become friends with the other women? Did you sort of bond together with them? or Somewhat. Actually, um, four of us were in a, an apartment, lived in an apartment. Did you keep in touch with them? I did. Well, my, the one 
we had two bedrooms, and each of us shared, mm. each pair shared a bedroom. So I kept in touch with my bedroom mate. Yeah. And um, I have seen her in the last 15 years. Mm. I kept in touch with her for quite a while at the beginning because we got her a job at the Signal Corps Labs. Uh-huh. Um, she took longer to finish her degree. Mm. And so she came down there in a year or so. Right. And, uh, and of the mm-hmm. 13, how many made it through? I don't know how many eventually. Four were in my class. I went straight through in three years. Mm-hmm. And because um, we had no no holidays. No holidays. Was that because um, of the war or was mm-hmm. that just how it was? They wanted to get the men through primarily. Oh, uh, right. So that they could get as much as they could before they were were drafted right and um they gave us a half day at the um on thanksgiving a half day uh-huh <laughs> so not no time to go home or anything oh no yeah, yeah. Just, just take a nap no, and back around and around <laughs> yeah yeah and what did you think you know I, here's another mm-hmm. again another uh, delusion of mine comes to light I love the idea of mathematics. I love the mystery, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. whole Pythagorean Mm -hmm. resonances and all that kind of thing. Doing math on paper, occasionally when I got something right, I got a surge of satisfaction, Uh but it didn't happen enough to really carry me very far. Oh, I I loved mathematics, and and I love pure mathematics. What is it that you love about it? Just what you say, the, the... the beauty of it all going together. Mm. And um, after I was married, I went, my husband had gone to Yale from MIT. Uh-huh. And so uh, I went down there. We went to live in New Haven. Right. And he and was going there to teach or to do he graduate He was teaching work? And, and he was, uh, he was getting his master's degree. Uh-huh. And um, Yale was very nice to me. They let me audit all the courses free. Mm. Now, since we had no money, that was the only way I could do it. Right. And then I taught in a local junior college. Oh. So you, mm. you were auditing graduate-level courses, but you weren't getting any credit for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But they had a marvelous math department. Was that a money thing, or, or they weren't accepting women into those uh, those courses? That. They had women in the graduate school, but not undergraduates. Really? Mm-hmm. So they take the women coming from MIT, yeah. but they wouldn't let yeah. them do the undergrad. And they yeah. had one woman uh, who was getting her doctorate, mm. who was very good. I'll bet. She was an African-American, <laughs> by the way. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Wow. An African-American yeah. woman all alone, the only woman, yeah. probably the only African-American. Yeah, she was the only... She was the only woman in the math department in, as a student, graduate student. Yes, I don't think there were any African-Americans beside. Wow. You don't remember her name, do you? I'm trying to think of it. I, yeah, I, looked, her to, up, I looked her up online, and she taught for years. And, oh, good. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, Evelyn Boyd. Evelyn Boyd. Huh. Good memory. Boy, no, it, it's it's the time lag that gets me about this memory loss. I if I just sit still, yeah, 
I don't know where that stuff is running around, but, but it takes a there. while to pull it out. Well, yeah. it's just amazing yeah. to be able to access it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm mm-hmm. 50. This is a problem. I have trouble remembering how old I am. So that, you definitely know there's a problem <laughs> there. Uh, but I'm I'm almost 52. Oh, you look the, like a kid. Yeah, uh, to you. <laughs> but I know. I know. It's funny how how the mm-hmm. definition of kid expands as we get older, right? Right. right. I mean, I meet someone that was 35. And I'm like, oh, you kids, yeah, kids. Right. Um, but yeah, I've noticed in the last few years, uh, it, it takes longer to access things. Mm-hmm. But gets I, worse. Yeah, I'm sure it does. But uh-huh. I've but, always had the problem to some extent. Though, yeah, so I, well, me too. I rationalize that I'm not really going downhill so fast. Well, and also there's there's just a lot more information in there. Oh, you know, I mean, so it makes well, sense. A that good it, rationalization. I'm good at rationalizing. Mm-hmm. You, you may uh-huh. have noticed that I've already <laughs> no. rationalized my lack of musical ability, mathematical ability, <laughs> and now my <laughs> shitty memory. It's. I, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I actually thought of writing a book of rationalizations, uh-huh. and uh-huh. You, so it would be divided into chapters by necessity. Yeah. Right. So if yeah. you know you're late, here's a whole bunch of good ones. Yeah. Uh, you know you're. Your husband or wife uh, is suspicious of you. Know, okay, here are a bunch. Uh, you yeah. know, you, whatever. You're you're calling sick too much. Whatever. Just like good rationalizations, mm-hmm. which aren't quite the same as lies. <laughs> right. I think there is a difference. You know, you're making mm-hmm. an argument that's viable. It could mm-hmm. be that the reason mm-hmm. we uh, our memory seems to mm-hmm. be slipping is that we just have so much more information mm-hmm. to organize and mm-hmm. access. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, okay. right? A <laughs> big library. It's going to take you longer to get to the stacks okay. and come back. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so the fact that you remember Evelyn Boyd's name is amazing. <laughs> Let's focus on that. Yeah. Well, and so she was all alone. So, okay, so you you were attracted to the the mystery of mathematics, the the way things fit together, the oh yes, I mean, the whole and e also equals MC the squareness um, of it, the history, the people. I was interested in um, the history of mathematics. Mm. Uh, like going back to Galileo and, and oh, those yeah. types. Do you know and, what I read recently? You may have read this too. I think it was in the New Yorker mm-hmm. that Galileo's father was a musician who designed uh, flutes and he taught music theory. Great. And mm-hmm. apparently there were Pythagorean rules. Mm hmm. Uh, that applied to where the how flutes should be designed, the harmonics of them, right, right. But those rules uh-huh. didn't actually work in mm-hmm. practice. That's right. And so that's true of all mathematics, really. And and engineering has to reconcile that, right? Because the engineer has to make the thing work, right? And, and it should work according to the theory, but yeah. it doesn't. Well, it's not. It, it's what we call second, third order effects. Hmm. Uh, but in in practical terms, they become important. Right. Um, when you do the mathematics, you assume something that is um, infinitely thin. Let's talk about the the pipe right. there. Oh, and I see. When you look at the um, at the pattern of the frequencies. Um, you have a half wavelength in there, and so you want a hole to be right in the middle there. 
But if the thing is tapered, is flute tapered or is that straight? I don't know. Yeah. But when it's They're tapered, types, then yeah. it's just a little off. Uh, and so then it's you get like a into conic section inside. Yeah, yeah. I remember taking a course. I t- I began taking graduate courses my uh, at the end of my sophomore year at MIT, and um, we had a a course in numerical analysis. I think it was called, and. It was sort of funny. For each example, they were lucky if they had one example to teach you the the theory of it and another example to give you for a quiz. Oh, right. <laughs> they, they were just so only, rare yeah. that you could get a doable example. Yeah. Now that you have computers, uh. I imagine these kids... Uh, will will program something and and go into the third order effects right right because they can but, model it but we couldn't know. do it in those yeah. days yeah mm-hmm. and were you raised in in any sort of religious tradition good atheists good practicing atheists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the difference in a good atheist and a bad atheist Sounds like the beginning of a joke. I'm not sure. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Hmm. Good atheist meaning like that you weren't. Uh, I think my feelings were pure. <laughs> I uh, don't know, uh, or maybe it's just that I I like to think of it that way. <laughs> right. Did you yeah. ever feel any sort of religious sense or transcendent experience related with mathematics? No. No, you never felt no, that. No, no. Because you know, I, I think it's just appreciation, like art, appreciation uh, of art. Right, right. No, I, I don't have any feelings like that. You never felt like God um, was whispering to you through formulas, and no, yeah. <laughs> not at all. See that I, I'm not mm-hmm. religious either, but mm-hmm. but I do sometimes feel like there are some there there are some. Symmetries, and maybe this is a reflection mm-hmm. of my lack of mathematical sophistication. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, you know, something like uh, what's what's the rule where the no matter how far the planet is from the sun, the sweep, the 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 triangle formed by the the sweep, area is swept in equal. Times. Exactly, right. So the yeah. planets closer to the sun yeah. go faster. They yeah. have a shallower, wider sweep. Yeah. I, I don't feel anything mystical about that because that's the only way the darn thing will work. Right. You, you draw the vectors. <laughs> so they'd, they'd veer off into space they'd, they'd if it escape. were weaker or exactly. they'd plunge to the sun exactly. if they were stronger. Yeah. So what do and you then, think about this? The The... As you know far better than me, the sun is many times bigger than the moon. And yet, the distance of the sun from the Earth compared to the distance of the moon from the Earth exactly compensates for their different diameters so that they appear to be exactly the same from the surface of the planet. Uh, and when there's a solar yeah. eclipse, you can see yeah. the solar flares. Right. Yeah. And that's now there's a, an example of something that doesn't have to be that way. But that's happen chance. If you were out on Jupiter, they've got different. Uh, different size moons they do they've got some that are much much smaller right, than ours right. 
And so you would hardly see the darn thing against the sun. Exactly. But see, uh-huh. that doesn't that reinforce my point, which is that... Oh, that our planet is special? That well, this is the only planet where there's anyone to notice. And so <laughs> uh-huh. if there were some supernatural uh-huh. yeah. force that, that yeah. wanted to leave a clue, yeah. what better way to do it yeah. than to take the two... Most uh-huh. significant entities in the sky that you know uh-huh. any intelligent being yeah. is going to be staring at right for millennia, one of which is always seen as masculine, uh-huh. the other's always seen as feminine uh-huh. and to mm. to create that kind of relationship between them that at some point an intelligent being would evolve enough to notice but it isn't exact. No, it's so not exactly. So if exact. I See, were designing your, it, I would have in. done it exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't have had it almost. <laughs> well, well, maybe that's just, you know, that's the jazz. That's the, the interpretation in it. Yeah. But it's pretty damn close. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen some eclipses, and it's like whew, yeah. very, very close. Yeah, but I think it's within 5%. And, and if I oh, were surely, a, yeah. uh, what, what do you creationist is that what they call it if i were a really intelligent designer designer, i would have done it exactly (laughs) right and and Mm -hmm. and they could have done our teeth better too i mean i always think about that yeah well i think the best example is the eyeball Hmm. the fact that it's uh it's flipped and it's really backwards from the way the way the um yeah the nerves the nerve bundle goes in yeah why take it inside and come out yeah it's because it evolved that way yeah yeah, and the eyeball has evolved independently many different times in many different animals. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm, another interesting mm-hmm. thing. And and in slightly different ways yeah, as a result. Yeah. Whereas if I were designing it, I wouldn't come in and have the blind spot and everything. I'd come, I'd have it attached to the eyeball right. on the outside. But who knows I, I mean the, the talking about the eyeball, vision itself is a complete mystery. You know, because mm-hmm. we see with our brains. We don't really, mm-hmm. I mean, the eyes are a necessary part of it, but the image is constructed by our brains. Right. But that's how it evolved, too, because yeah. uh, all those uh, nerve endings are not all lined up the way we would design a camera with a raster. Right. And so the brain had to take this spot and that spot and that spot and that spot and. And uh, line them up in the computer. Yeah, create a composite. And we do a lot of things in a computer for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. It's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, I don't want to get so off too far into that. So I think physics dictates these things. I so you, mm-hmm. right, and you don't see any sort of supernatural significance in the the the, the beauty of how all these things fit together. That's just yeah. the way it has to be. So it's sort of uh-huh. like a, mm-hmm. it's like saying, well, flowers are so beautiful, and you say, well, yeah, they have to be beautiful to attract the bees to uh-huh. spread the pollen, and like, yeah, I, I think that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, what about the? So, do you you don't resonate then with the sort of scientists like uh, Einstein, Carl Sagan, who who felt some sort of um, transcendent. Yeah, I'm not sure Einstein did. I think mm. a lot of that is is ascribed to him, and I think also he was in an era when he said these poetic things: yeah. uh, "Man walks with his God" or something like that. Something I on think, the beach, looking at seashells. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it was just sort of uh, his 
his era. Yeah. And yeah, although he was people were so more poetic. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about that, mm-hmm. but I, I think also uh I don't know. That, he said something I read recently. Uh he said you can look at you can look at the universe as if there as if nothing is a miracle or you can look at it as if everything's a miracle. Uh-huh. And in a way they're the same thing. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, because you're not saying this is more miraculous than that. You're saying there's right. sort of a, a flat field of miraculousness, and you can just choose <laughs> Very nice. whether you agree with it or, or uh-huh. not, but it doesn't really change the thing, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Interesting guy. You never met Einstein, did you? No. Yeah. He was at the Institute uh, at, at down Princeton. in Princeton. Yeah. Uh, in my lifetime, yeah, no, yeah, he was there to mm-hmm. into the fifties, wasn't he? In the forties, fifties, I think so. Yeah, because he was asked he to be the first president of Israel, which was what late forties when Israel was founded, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. refused. I would have been. Yeah. I didn't know that. Smart uh-huh. move. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. smart move. Well, he was pretty old by then too. Yeah, yeah, but he yeah. was very he was very political. He mm-hmm. he was he But wrote, the idea of taking that on must have been yeah. very frightening. Yeah. I remember he wrote a letter to uh who would it have been to to FDR about the the whole atomic uh research but I know the bomb wasn't uh used until uh after FDR, Truman. but I think he he wrote to FDR about huh. the research that was being done, trying to stop it, and uh, he, he felt personally responsible for having uh-huh. unleashed uh-huh. a lot of this research. Yeah. Um, and you, uh, Nomi said you met Richard Feynman at some point. Oh yeah, he he gave uh, courses at, at Hughes, oh, did where he? I worked. Uh, he was here at Caltech, right? Right. That, yeah. Uh, Absolutely delightful man. I'll bet. And, uh, Did you get to know him personally at all? Well, uh, we used to walk out together to our cars and chat. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of interested. He told me a story about uh, <laughs> how idiotic the educators could be. Mm. He was he was reviewing some books and. Um, he told me a problem that they had put in there that was absolutely stupid. Uh, it was roughly this. You have seven stars, and this one is so many degrees, and that one is so many degrees. And, and if you... Uh, I've forgotten to add them all up, which, and there's no reason in this world for adding them all up, then what is the answer? of the average or something, some absolutely idiotic thing. Mm. And uh, he was describing this to me. And then he, I read his uh, first biography, and he repeated that story in it. Oh, so really? that was kind of interesting. <laughs> he was trying interesting. it out on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See how you react. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what was the biography? That wasn't surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. That must have been a much later one. Yeah, I have them in there. I've forgotten yeah, the names of them. Someone gave that to me. I always something. forget the titles of books. Yeah, yeah. I've I've learned to get better at that since I'm sort of in that game. If now. you want to find them, you better. Yeah, well, do now it. with Google, you could just Google, you know, uh-huh. first biography of Feynman, yeah. and it'll pop right yeah. up. You know, yeah. but 
that that must uh-huh. change like mm-hmm. cognition so much for mm-hmm. you know because I'm on yeah. you and I are on the same side of that divide. I was all uh-huh. I was in my 30s when the internet started to really yeah. hit. Yeah. So I went you know Dewey Decimal System and yeah. you know libraries and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it must change the 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 whole endeavor for younger people now not to have that. I kind of, you know, like, like I guess always happens when older people look at the way younger people live. You sort of uh-huh. pity them in a way that they don't have that experience of libraries and, yeah. you know, going and finding nice a book in the stacks. Nice feeling of those heavy cards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Felt, yeah. I mean, I, even microfiche, you know, if you had yeah. to really go back and go through right. the machines. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Richard Feynman. Yeah. What a wonderful guy. And what a lecturer. Oh, I'll bet. He must have been so amusing and and illuminating. I have had so many good pedagogues. Ah. And... And there's such a gulf between the the good ones and the bad ones. Yeah. And they all get jobs at colleges, Hmm. the good and the bad. Yeah, not not mm-hmm. based on the quality of their teaching. So no. when you get a good one, it's no. it's a diamond in the dirt. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So who else? Anyone else jump out at you in terms of? Well, great it's teachers? kind of interesting. At MIT, there was an example of each. Uh, Norbert Wiener, who mm-hmm. is a first line mathematician, yeah, I've heard of him, yeah. and uh, who I knew his family, and I've been to his house and all uh, that. Terrible teacher. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and they realized it after a time, and they didn't have him teach. Uh-huh. And then uh, Raphael Salem was superb. Dirk Struick, Struick, whom you may have heard of. No, Dirk uh, Struick. Dirk Struick, S T R U I C K. He was a superb teacher, and I was lucky to have him for about three courses. I I did a reading course with him my last year. And, reading uh, in mathematics? Yeah. What, what that's does that what mean? they call it. What, what does that it mean? It just meant that you, uh, if they didn't, MIT would give any course you asked for, any, any legitimate course. Uh. And if they didn't have a bunch of people, then you just read oh, with a I see. professor. Like, sort of like an Oxford-Cambridge style uh, tutorial. That's what they called it. So Yeah. He'd assign stuff, and mm-hmm. you'd go read it, and then you'd discuss it. Oh. And it was very lucky to have had him. Uh, it was, um, oh, um, we did Principia by um, Bertrand Russell. Mm. And, uh, he, he, I know he was a philosopher. Was he also, mm-hmm. also a mathematician? He was a mathematical philosopher. Oh, very good mathematician. Oh. Excellent. People don't. That's why he's so rational. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what, do you Nothing think, sentimental about Russell, right? Do you think rationality can be taken too far? Is there are there limits to rationality? I'd just rephrase that and say there's good rationality and not so good. No, <laughs> that, that if the it gets quality too far, of the thought or the application. Mm-hmm. I think it's the quality of the thought, how far you take it. Huh. And, and the taking realization, it not far enough is the problem. Or too far. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine taking it too far, what that would mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You see my biases. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do. Uh-huh. And I resonate with them because mm-hmm. it's like what you said about, and that was a very good example, with the flute. Mm-hmm. But 
the the theory assumes no thickness of the fluid itself mm-hmm. and no mm-hmm. sort of uh, interference. I, I mean, I guess this uh-huh. is uh, it was at Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that uh-huh. the well maybe I'm misapplying that, but the yeah. that that there once you get an observer or once you get any sort of practical involvement. Then the pure mathematics is no longer sufficient, right? Yeah, that's a physics concept, not a mathematical, right? Right. That by the very act of observing, you're going to um, change it. Right, right. Which also is applied to anthropology and to biology and all sorts of things. Even more so there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Although it took years before anyone started making that application. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, the uh-huh. idea, well, uh-huh. one of the, uh, we write about this in Sex at Dawn, the most famous anthropologist in the world is Napoleon Chagnon, most famous mm-hmm. living anthropologist, mm-hmm. who went to the Amazon uh, for his, his doctoral research, and he wanted to um, study um, genealogy of some of the very primitive people living there, the Yanomami. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so as a way to win their cooperation he came in with a bunch of machetes and shotguns that he would give to them they had no machetes or shotguns so he immediately disrupted the ecology and the balance of power among the different villages and then he quickly found out that among the yanomami it's highly taboo to ever say the name of a dead person Uh uh-huh so how are you going to study genealogy Right. right so what he did was he he trick them where he'd go into one village and and give them a bunch of gifts and say well listen um i know you don't like to talk about this but the people in that village told me that your grandfather's name was so and so and if he guessed right he could he'd see how angry they got and that's how he confirmed that he guessed the right name the name and you've Jeopardized his whole future. Yeah, exactly. Uh So he not only gave them weapons Mm -hmm. and caused you know uh, jealousy and because of the inequality of their resources, Mm -hmm. he gave them reasons to fight with each other because he's planted all this anger. And then he wrote a best-selling book called "The Fierce People" about how aggressive they are. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. (laughs) Talk about you know observer involvement and distortion. Right. Yeah, so that's that's a famous case, which even uh-huh. today people are arguing whether that's a legitimate criticism to make. And this oh, was, are they? Yeah, and this was in the 1960s. Oh, that seems obvious, seems doesn't obvious, it? Seems obvious, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, the same uh-huh. thing happened with Jane Goodall and the uh-huh. chimpanzee studies. Oh, they said that she had changed them. Well, by, she did because she yeah, left food she for them. Oh, I see. Because oh, yeah, it was sure. easier to have that them come really, in oh, sure. to be observed than sure, to chase sure. them through the jungle. Exactly. So they started leaving food every day mm-hmm. to bring the chimps in. Mm-hmm. Then the chimps started fighting. She reported that the yeah. chimps were aggressive, and everyone said, oh, chimps are aggressive. Look. Oh, yeah. They have war. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. that's that's veering yeah. off the topic a little bit. Yeah. But, um, well, I'm very conscious of the two two varieties of psychologists because... Maury, my husband, who died four years ago now, um, was a uh, an experimental psychologist. Ah, right. And he was a an very scientific sort of person. Right. And uh, the therapist I 
gather has to be much more intuitive and and just looking at the two groups of people i can see that yeah there's a big gulf yeah (laughs) Yeah. gulf and not and no love lost in in some cases but the very act of of designing an experiment is a very scientific kind of thing right yeah yeah for all the reasons you say i'm just shocked that anyone wouldn't think that somebody took arms in there wasn't really violating all the ideas of designing an experiment yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's and as i say that was Mm -hmm. the late 1960s early 70s so uh it's Uh, taken a long time before you know and even now where anthropologists are very conscious of these things and try Mm -hmm. not to interfere in any way Mm -hmm. their presence is uh is necessarily an interference, of course, just having this yeah. weird stranger there. But one thing that often comes up is they'll come in with uh, like trunks full of food, mm-hmm. peanut butter, chocolate bars, things like that, because mm-hmm. they're not going to get out of there for six months uh-huh. or a year. So they bring things from home. That uh-huh. Now, this is an egalitarian society where all food is shared. Oh yeah. So now you come and live with us. You want us to take care of you and, and share you our keep stories. Your own trunk. And you've got it locked in your <laughs> oh, little hut yes, there indeed. that we built for you. Yeah, oh, and we're yes, supposed indeed. to respect you. It completely Sure. You know, it's a it's a strange Very situation. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um okay, so we were talking about Richard Feynman and uh uh the great teachers that you've had over the years. So you you we don't need to do this, uh-huh. you know, chronologically or yeah. whatever, but eventually you um you got into some interesting positions doing interesting research at at Hughes which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before you were at Hughes you were in what's now known as Silicon Valley, is that right? Just for a year. Just for a year. At Sylvania, it was uh a year of sort of spinning my wheels. Uh, I went there when they just set up that branch of Sylvania. And Sylvania was doing defense work at that time? It's called Electronic Defense Systems, yes. And um, I was, I had a trade, which I'd gotten, I, I worked for the Signal Corps five years before that. Right. And at that time... Did you work with your father at all? No, 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 no. He, no. Was, he had long gone. Uh, okay. But um, I had uh, become an antenna designer, and that was a very saleable trade. Uh, I was going to ask if you had trouble getting mm. work, uh, given so that, the, the that resistance in academia. Deal. Mm. Uh, yes, I didn't uh, stay in ac- Well, for one thing, there was no money there. And right. They began to like jaguars and things like that. <laughs> Anyhow, we came to uh, Sylvania, which was set up by the Signal Corps. This was with your first husband? Right. Okay. And we, he, both, so he, we both he had jobs at Yale? there. He got his master's got degree. Got his master's at Yale. Okay. And then he went to the Signal Corps uh, with me. Uh-huh. And then uh, we came out here. And uh, how did we get to Sylvania? Uh, because of the antenna right, research, right? So I had I had um, learned about antennas at the Signal Corps labs, and so when I came to the, to Sylvania, I was the antenna person to set up that department for them, mm. which was not to my liking at all. 
I'm, I'm not at all interested in that kind of thing. But so uh, you so you came out here and set up a big antenna installation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you were a kid, your father set up the big antenna installation oh, yeah. in Bermuda. Yeah. So is there some gene for <laughs> antenna talent or something? Maybe. Or I'd heard about antennas since my childhood. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Is there a simple mm-hmm. way to explain? I mean, I know what an antenna mm-hmm. is, but I really have no idea how it works. I mean, okay. it's 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 picking it's it's designed mm-hmm. to receive some frequency, I guess. Right. right? It's very frequency dependent. So, um, you remember the radio in your childhood sure. when you had a wire yeah. that went up? Well, that's I was going to ask you about rabbit yeah. ears and aluminum yeah, foil exactly. and all that stuff. Well, how you design your antenna or how how big it has to be has to do with the frequencies. Mm. And so the low frequencies have big wavelengths. And your radiator has to be comparable to that wavelength. Right. A tenth of it, a quarter of it, half ah, of it. Ah, okay. So the drive from Pythagorean the... measures again, uh-huh. right? It has to be an exact... Of the, of the wavelength, yeah. yes. And so um, there's a drive to, you want a smaller antenna, rabbit ears. Right. But in order to go up in frequency, you must have a transmitter, an oscillator, that will work at the short wavelengths. So my whole career has been seeing the transition from... 60 cycles, which is, I've forgotten how long it is, miles. Hmm. That's the, the wavelength is miles long. Yes. Really. And so that wire that you had is just a fragment of a wavelength. Uh-huh. And uh, you'd like to go up because you can get an antenna that has more directivity more, uh, uh-huh. and um, many advantages. However... It's harder and harder to generate the waves at at higher frequencies because uh, they have to be exact oscillations. Not, not that so much. It just took a while to to um, develop the the uh, tubes and the uh, equipment, and then later the transistors and the diodes to do that. Oh, uh, okay. So through my lifetime, people have gotten better and better at the circuitry for making an oscillator. At higher and higher frequencies. Mm. And uh, thus, everything has gotten portable. Smaller. And it's gone along with all of the things that you've heard about Moore's Moore's Law. The uh, the things double every 10 years or something? I think it was, yeah. Talking about chip speed or something? Just the speed at which, you, yeah, yeah, of development, the, or the the, the the size of the circuitry, right? That's what it matters. Uh, it's to. minimization. It's smaller, that's smaller, right. yeah. smaller. Yeah, and then um, my last few years of working, I was uh, looking at making things like radar in the optical range. Okay, things like radar in the optical range. What would that mean? Well, in radar, you have an oscillator. Right. You send out a beam, 
And it bounces off. And then it bounces off, and it comes back, and you measure the distance between them. Right. And uh, they got more and more sophisticated. You could have a a lot of these sensors, and you could have a whole... um, You could paint a picture with the radar. Hmm. So all of that has evolved in my memory, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, evolved a lot. Yeah, Yeah. massive changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so you were looking at doing that within the optical range, which is just a very small sliver of all the frequencies. Well, yes. Or uh, actually, uh, I was trying to keep it uh, low enough in in frequency. I was trying to get to a small wavelength, Mm -hmm. but uh, I was also trying to keep it low enough so that you could actually do the computer part of it at those frequencies. Mm. And even now, there's a no-man's land in there where I was working, and they haven't really breached it yet. Really? It's in the... IR to to visible, mm-hmm. uh, ten microns up to point four my uh, microns. That's the wavelength. Wavelength, yeah. Oh. Um, so um, as as they can improve the circuitry, then you can capitalize it on as you go up. The antennas stay very similarly. They just sort of scale, right? As you go up, and then the antennas, the like dish antennas, that's a different thing, right? That's no, no, that's uh, it's all part of the same. Ah. I was going to say this about antennas. The first fundamental thing is that you have a transmitting antenna and a receiving antenna, and they are just they're completely reciprocal. You can design a transmitting antenna that looks like a receiving antenna. Uh-huh. And the way that a, if you have a transmitting antenna here and a receiving antenna here, then um, the current across the aperture is a Fourier transform of the radiating energy. <laughs> you may as well be speaking Russian to me right okay. now. Okay, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a very simple and beautiful idea. Ah. Um, it's like a Newtonian sort of... Uh, yeah, yeah, very basic. Right, yeah. right. So uh-huh. I know there are naturally occurring radio waves uh, emitted by mm-hmm. quasars and things like that in, mm-hmm. in space. Are there naturally occurring radio waves on Earth? I mean, I guess bats, you know, have... Oh, they use sound. And, uh, yeah, bats use sound. Sound, by the way, is very complicated. Really? To me, it's much more complicated than electromechanical. Oh, really? Because it's more nuanced, more Yeah, it has a medium. um, A medium. Oh, because it has to be transmitted through air or mm -hmm. or water or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Ah, and that mm-hmm. affects the nature mm-hmm. of the transmission. Ah, yeah. well, back to the the flute yeah. and theory. You remember in high school? Did you take physics? I did. I enjoyed yeah. it. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, remember? Put uh, did they ever take an alarm clock and put it in a bell jar 
and they put the top on and and cinched it down, and you couldn't hear it anymore. Oh, they they created a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, yeah. no, yeah. I don't think we did that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. There's no sound in space, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and um, the mathematics is much more complicated than simple electromagnetic uh, transmission. So I'm speaking to a mathematical uh, engineering genius here, and I want to ask you the simplest question in the world, which I, which has been explained to me, I have to say, several times by very patient people, and I never got it. So th- <laughs> this might be uh, something I should just give up on. But I cannot, for the life of me, understand how a needle moving through a groove on a piece of vinyl can make Beethoven's Fifth come out of the speakers. Oh, really? With all, I don't see, I mean, I, oh, I, I listen okay. to it, I hear all the violins, I hear uh-huh. I hear the uh-huh. oboe over there, uh-huh. I hear the click of the uh-huh. baton on the oh. thing, I'm hearing it all at the same time, and it's all somehow coming from this yeah. thing, just like going down a groove and moving around a little bit. Well, let me try this. Suppose you have a, a lattice, like a um, shutter. And you take a stick and you go down and go. Right. Right. And then suppose you stick in between that, those uh, shutter things, um, some little bitty fine um, membranes. Hmm. If you could hear it, it would go. Duke, the big one. Yeah. And so when you are rotating your disc and you have the needle there, there are some big bumps for the low frequencies. And then on top of the big bumps, there's some little bumps. And so that thing is moving like this. It's moving on the big bumps. It's going like this. And then the little bumps, it's going little jerks like that. So it's going... And so if I have something that can record that, it comes back to you with the... The, the little aberrations, the high frequencies, which are the, uh, the, the violins, violins yeah. that are superimposed on the um, bassoon. But, so yeah. this part of hmm. it is sorted out, and when you reconstruct it, it comes out just the same way it went in. Yeah. And your, your cochlea sorts that out. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, yeah, it's hard for me, and and I guess this is just my my mathematical incapacity here, because it's hard for me to conceptualize all those different quality of sounds all at the same Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. as being just a question of frequency. But it Mm -hmm. must be, because as you say, the cochlea is picking up frequency, Mm -hmm. that's all it can pick up. And think of the early sound on early movies. Hmm. And how crude it is. Yeah. Now, there are other things that couldn't even reproduce the higher points, yeah. the, the higher frequencies. But even so, it, it's it's scratchy. And it's because you do not have the 
sensitivity on at both ends yeah in order to give you the smoothness that you actually hear the smoothness is because you're reacting to all those all those uh, distortions right so when people say audiophiles mm-hmm. say that that vinyl sounds much better than digital is that possible only if the digital is badly done. Right. Because and yeah. here's a case of okay. taking, if you take rationality far enough, yeah. it should. Yeah. It. I can't imagine, like, if it's a good yeah. digital recording. Yeah, it'll get better than the, the vinyl because the vinyl has other. other uh, limitations. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't react very well to high frequencies. Okay, and, and so uh, and, and uh-huh. the ear is limited. So I imagine uh-huh. the technology is far beyond what the ear is capable of hearing oh, anyway. Yes. yes. So I don't understand the, when these people mm-hmm. say, "No, no, vinyl mm-hmm. sounds much better." It sounds like bullshit to me. But I, I'm not. I would agree with you. I am very skeptical. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, not having such an educated ear musically. I can't really argue with them, right? But, but I kind of think there's some imagination. The technology, going on. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, can we talk about some of the some of the other work you did? Um, I, mm-hmm. I know some of it you're not at yeah. liberty to discuss, but well, the one that I'm I ha- probably most satisfying was the Landsat. Hmm. And um, no, explain what Landsat is. Okay, this is satellites what looking down at Earth, right? What we were going to do is, for starters, we put a satellite in space, uh, relatively low um, distances, 500 nautical miles out. Did you ever meet Buckminster Fuller, by the way? No. No. Oh, he, he must have been a fascinating guy. <laughs> uh-huh. Could you imagine him and Richard Feynman together for dinner? Oh, dear. No, I, I think there'd be sparks. <laughs> oh, really? Too much yeah. alpha male presence? No, no. I think that uh, Fuller was uh, not nearly so scientific as, as Feynman. Much more uh, intuitive. Yeah. Because didn't he develop? I'm sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you there, but no, didn't no. he develop the whole idea of the geosynchronous orbit? Oh no. no, 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 no! Much older than he. Oh really? Oh yes. No, oh, I thought that was something that Fuller no. had uh, no. had originated. No. Uh, By the way, Hughes put the first geostationary uh, satellite up. Oh really? I have, I have equipment on that. Oh really? Yeah. Is it still up? Oh, uh, it's up, but I don't know if this is working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when uh, when was that? The first. First, uh, where was I? A geosynchronous orbit, for people who don't know, is is a satellite that basically floats over the same piece of Earth always, right? So it's well, what it does is it goes around the Earth once every twenty four hours, right? And the Earth is going around under it once every twenty four hours, right? So you can make the Earth look stationary, right? So you can you can when, shoot up a television. Yeah beam or whatever yeah. and bounce it off and people can receive it and it's 22,000 miles up uh, okay. and uh, to put that into perspective the moon is uh, a quarter of a million miles 250,000 so it's about a tenth the distance to the moon or a ninth yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but um, anyhow this is much lower than geostationary geostationary is 22,000 uh-huh. I'm speaking very yeah, I roughly. The exact. Yeah. And 
It would depend we on the going, weight, right, of the satellite? No. The exact distance? No, it's always the same? It's always the same. No matter the mass of the satellite? I mean, I That's guess maybe right. it varies so little. The, the no, size no, no, it doesn't vary at all. Oh, it's no, I mean the, the difference in the mass of satellites we're sending out. has nothing to do with it. There's nothing yeah. to do with it, really. Because uh-uh. uh-uh. it does you with planetary orbit, You can put a ping-pong ball up it? there, and, oh, or really? you can put a, a, a massive satellite. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Only the distance. The mass of the Earth has has to do with it. Yeah, I that would have thought. I thought it was the mass of the two objects, like because if the moon oh, were closer, right? Oh, I see what right, you're saying. Um, although that, I mean, that is a minuscule. Yeah, the size of the things we're putting up is all. It's it's the same. it's harder to put them up because it takes more force to get them up there. Right. But once you've got them there, there's no difference. Then they'll just stay there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, what we wanted to do, uh, we wanted to come down to a closer orbit because the optics, if you tried to do it Oh, this is an, high, a, an optical monitoring system. So you're it, mm-hmm. you've got telescopes. This is yeah, and so what I looking did, at light. designed the the telescope, ah. and in the focal plane of the telescope, we wanted to put detectors for as many spectral bands as possible. Hmm. And so the idea has been around a long time ago, and various users had multispectral scanners in aircraft and they had learned how to take these myriad of of spectral bands in if you can manage it mm-hmm. because uh, the the more the the better and uh you can discern what a material is by the pattern of the spectral responses Kind of like how they tell what uh, stars are made of and planets are made of mm-hmm. by the way the mm-hmm. light moves through them. Or by the way the, or, the frequencies of light that come back. Right, right. Yeah, so you can uh-huh. do that on Earth, looking down yeah. at Earth. So you can yeah. tell if it... Because this has revolutionized archaeology, as I'm sure you know. Well, yes. That, yeah. They were one of the people that we wanted to... We, we wanted to, um, to um, provide imagery in spectral bands... For geologists mm-hmm. and uh, agronomists, crops, water quality, right. uh, forestry, uh-huh. many agencies would like to have a repetitive picture uh-huh. of the earth. Right. And so... Right. Uh we knew how they did them from aircraft. As they say, they could they can lift tons, mm. and they can have almost a continuous frequency spectrum coming out. But we couldn't do that from spacecraft. It's too heavy. We can couldn't put all that up. So what I did was go around to all these people, talk to them, and gather their requirements, and. The geologists wanted near IR, in other words, for rocks, you, certain spectral bands are better, hmm. and for uh, the crop people, uh, 
other spectral bands are better. Right. The crop people, for example, like to work around one micron because I'm trying to make sure I got my decimal places right. One ten, yeah, because there you have a chlorophyll crossover oh, response. Right. So you see the growing and, plants, the living plant. And, yeah. So the idea was that if you gave them these data, they could put them into a computer and come out with what was growing in these various fields, right. how, how well they're growing, oats, peas, you can see beans, algae barley. In the ocean, probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's another uh, there's another camera that I worked on before that oceanography. Oh. it's a little easier because you have bigger, uh, big, bigger patches. How do you keep the? You, you said you you wanted to pull the satellite down out of geosynchronous orbit closer to the Earth. No, to- it's just that where we put it in, where we inject it, and we wanted to inject it at 500. Uh huh. Because. But how do you? The optics would be right. too big if you tried to do it from above. Right. And this leads me to a funny story. When I first started doing this, Hughes ha- felt they owned geostationary hmm. orbits. And so we had some VPs who were not, they were technical, but not real good at this. And they said, we want to do it from geostationary. And I would sigh, knowing that it was just... It's just too far The optics out. would be ten times bigger. Yeah. And as it was, I, I, would, I fought. The first one was nine inches, the, the, the aperture, and the second was 16. So you got 16-inch polished lenses? Did, did you have a lens that covered that aperture? No, we used reflectors, but I'll oh. tell you. Oh, okay. Anyway... Uh, so the, I wanted uh, $100,000 to do a prototype and uh, company money. And this uh, one man in particular who will remain nameless, who was a thorn in the sides of many of us, said, I'll give you the money if you give me a study on how you do it from geostationary. Right. So I, it was very easy. I spent a week and showed him it would be impossible. Yeah. So he sighed and gave me the hundred thousand dollars. Study on why we won't do it for geostationary. Exactly. Right? Not quite what yeah. you asked for, but yeah. So then it was then I took my design off and uh, to to um, Washington and uh-huh. testified before Congress. That's why I dug this out. Uh, the Carth Committee. We've got a, on the yeah. table here, we've got uh, February 1968, comments on the Earth Resources Satellite Program presented to Subcommittee on Space Science and Applications of the Committee on Science and Astronautics of the U.S. House of Representatives. That was Senator, uh, that was uh, Representative Carth, K-A-R-T-H. Don't know whether you remember him or not. You probably don't remember 68 very well. No, uh, I, was, <laughs> I was six. Yes. Yeah. Anyhow, Nomi probably would still remember Cars. Yeah, well, she probably <laughs> heard about still, him on the, at the dinner right. table. Anyhow, um, so my colleagues, at this point, they wanted to do the whole thing. They wanted the spacecraft as well as the... Uh, at Hughes, yeah, now, and you were Hughes was funded by the government. Is that how that worked? Or Hughes mm-hmm. Hughes was an independent company, but they no, were doing no. a lot of contract work. A lot of contract, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. We were almost entirely government. You never and met Howard Hughes, did you? I saw him twice. Really? I never met him. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, so my colleagues were designing a lot of that as the spacecraft to do it. Uh-huh. And then, then I did the uh, camera stuff in there. And uh, we, did get, we did not get the sp- uh, spacecraft. Uh, they decided to fly it on a GE spacecraft that was already had been flown and uh, was well known. Right. And so uh, they gave me the con- uh, then then um, NASA gave me the contract to make the camera. So you were in charge of the the optical part of the project. The all the the transmitter everything it was a one man band there. Oh for a really? While. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I did the transmitter. So they had someone mm-hmm. else like we'll get it up there, but what what yeah. we're putting is you. That's yeah. what you've got to. Wow, that's yeah. that's a pretty and, big project. Yeah. <laughs> and going out and getting the requirements, which took. A fair amount of time too, because then you the idea was to sell this information to the the end users, to the the universities and well, the oil no, companies did, and all that. Well, eventually, but mm. NASA did it. Uh, NASA would put these things up just for just the sheer science. Yeah, and uh, of course, and it was a joint. It turned out it was a joint venture between uh, NASA and uh, Department of Interior. Oh. For the the land use and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I what, had an entree to all those people right. who represented the the county, um, uh, what, what do you call those people? Anyhow, the government has has people that go out and would tramp around or drive around and hmm. do those measurements before they oh, go out. I and they go on the roads. Each county would have somebody, and they'd say, "Yeah, there's nigger barley and oh, so like forth." Surveying the crops that are yeah, they just go and, and keep right, track. Right, so you're going to put all them mm-hmm. out of business. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one well, they swoop. were pleased. It didn't work very well. I mean, uh, they, they they didn't have uh, timely right. uh, data. Right. And, yeah, by the time yeah. it all got to Washington, the, mm-hmm. everything had changed. So then NASA gave me money to make. The um, camera and mm-hmm. the transmitter, and um, by the way, this was the first time that data were transmitted digitally. Really, the the Landsat program. Really, yeah. Wow. And I wanted it to be digital because let me describe the the camera briefly. Um, you have a telescope. It's a Cassegrainian, such as used for, you've heard of Cassegrainian, no. or that's what all these huge telescopes are for astronomical things. Uh-huh. Well, this is a little... Optical and, telescope. And it's all yeah. reflecting because there's essentially no wavelength problem with a reflector. Hmm. Oh, because you don't have lenses to move closer and further apart and all that? Well, lenses, by their very nature, vary a great deal with the frequency. Uh The the way the wave refracts has to do with the refractive index, which is very frequency-dependent. Oh, okay. Whereas 
um, reflectors are purely geometric. Oh, I see. Just angles. angle in, right. angle out. Right. They're equal. Right. So they go over a wide wavelength. And I was designing this. The first one, I didn't uh, go into the IR, but I knew I wanted it to be something like 20 to 1 in frequency. Whereas if you have um, if you have uh, refractive lenses like your cameras, 10% is a very big wavelength hmm. for, for the uh, wavelength um, range. Wow, right. So I wanted it to be all reflective optics. Uh, we did have a competitor here, and it was uh, RCA, and they proposed a method with um, lenses and uh, kinescope, like the television. Mm. They flew, and they had three different cameras for three different colors. Mm. Keep hitting your thing. And <laughs> so on the first launch, they flew my camera and RCA's three Viticons. On the same launch? On the same launch. Oh. And they shut those down after about three months. Because the quality of the data was much better from yours. Yeah. Uh. Because uh, the registry primarily uh it's very hard to register three pictures in color together. Oh, oh right. You're accustomed to color. Right. And they and they do it in uh they do it in, in uh, one kinescope. But um your eye isn't nearly so fussy. Yeah. The registration on, on a on a television screen is nothing like the registration that we're asking for here yeah at 500 miles yeah <laughs> yeah so the you know the first so time then, oh, then sorry. They, yeah. one more thing mm -hmm. they flew the prototype yeah that's never done oh they flew wait the I prototype built, is what what they I, launched they launched my and, prototype and you didn't have a spare we couldn't afford it Right, because normally don't, when they do satellites, don't they always have a second one? Don't they oh, make sure. two? They build two? Oh, at least. Yeah, right. And they and they generally do, never fly the prototype. Right. Why? Because it's because you've been messing with it. It's not well, as exact. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. It's your model. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. It's your first draft. Yeah, and and you've cut corners on it and such. So why did they? Did you did you resist that? Were you unhappy no, no, about that? No, 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 But I I suspected I wanted them to do it because otherwise we wouldn't have gotten launched in seventy two. We would have gone through another iteration, and the more iterations you go through with through with NASA, the more likely they're going to cancel the whole damn thing. Oh. <laughs> and so, uh, mm. well, so in those days, there was plenty of money at NASA, mm. wasn't there? No, oh, we're always we're always you know this is lots of money they're talking about. Yeah, and so uh, um, my part wasn't a lot of money, but even so, it's pretty staggering. Yeah, but uh, the launches cost a lot of money yeah but the other uh -huh. thing that your project had going for it was obvious uh national security applications yeah that's kind of funny yeah you know i so, imagine yeah. if the, if you yeah. if they see that angle uh, you're much well, less likely early to get on 
people said uh, that NASA shouldn't do this, that uh, that the the military people should do it, mm. and they didn't understand at all what was involved here. They they didn't do multispectral. The military? No, they did. They did <laughs> photographs, and it's so, so funny how they that came to the Bureau of the Budget, yeah, and said, "Just tell us what you want, and we'll do it." Well, yeah. they're not repetitive. They're just different animal. Yeah. They have a camera that takes snapshots, or did. Right. So then after we launched and after it was pretty successful, they come. I can remember one man coming in to me and it was, tell us about this multispectral stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to know? It's not secret to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, that was kind of funny. So I, I did work for them later on. Did you have so you had security clearance? Oh, I've always had it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah everyone in these in the in everyone in aerospace had to have a security clearance. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So I had clearances from the time I was twenty-one years old. Hmm. Did you, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, obviously mm-hmm. you don't answer what you can't mm-hmm. answer, but did yeah. you ever have any involvement with the Star Wars missile defense system? Mm-hmm. It sounds like something that SDI. would be up your alley. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on SDI. Oh, really? During yeah. the Reagan administration? Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. What they wanted was just so expensive and so silly. Well, I mean, the, impossible, by the way. Yeah. What they wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. It, what's the thing like shooting a bullet out of the sky? You know, yeah. there's some. Well, later on, you know, they did some experiments when they downsized completely. Hmm. They did some experiments and they had to just reduce and reduce and reduce their goals. Right. In order to <laughs> do, they do got, that. They got so missed it finally. Every time. Originally, they had all these. Uh, the the um, problem was phrased as all these missiles coming up and attacking you, and you shooting them down. Right. Well, when they did a test, and they were so relieved when they got a final hit, they shot one thing up from Kwajalein. They had a beacon on it. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. And even then, they had a terrible time shooting it down. Yeah. And they knew the speed it was flying at. They knew they, exactly where it, it was, and it yeah. had a little beacon saying <laughs> to go to it. So yeah. it is a ridiculous problem. It should be resisted whenever it comes up. And it's a very old problem. Jules Verne. The uh, problem of, of shooting down a moving object? Is the that whole, the problem? The whole idea of, of defense is always so much harder than, than, than aggression. Offense, yeah, exactly. And uh, um, Jules Verne had... I'd like to find it. I read it so long ago. He had a story about two groups. And one were the offense people and one were the defense people. Hmm. And how they'd have these competitions. Right. And he spelled all this out. Reagan could have read it. <laughs> <laughs> or had it read to him, maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a theory about Star Wars, which which may sound absurd to you. Mm-hmm. But my theory, I, I looked at this and I said, okay, as long as I've 
well, as long as since 1980, anyway, mm-hmm. this has been a major budget item right through the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hugely expensive. I, I don't know, hundreds of billions Never of dollars. Never should have been. Yep. And now the political explanation is, oh, it was all part of bankrupting the Soviet Union. And freaking them out. But if they had any sense at all, they would look at it and say, good, spend your money on that. Because we can make new missiles faster than you can figure Mm -hmm. this shit out. Mm -hmm. So we'll just, you know, it's a silly uh, approach. So so that didn't, the political explanation didn't make sense. The the corruption explanation is, ah, this is all just a way to get money to the cronies of the defense industry, Mm -hmm. whatever. But... Could that be. Could be, but that's also... Well, they've got other things. They've got their airplanes and their yeah. nuclear aircraft yeah. carriers. Yeah. So they didn't really need to be doing this particular yeah. thing to divert lots of money. So my my theory is that this has nothing to do with what they say it is. That's all a cover story. They never even thought that they were going to be able to shoot down missiles. That what they're really doing was setting up... A network of uh, surveillance satellites that are part of the Star Wars thing. They've got to have all these satellites mm-hmm. in place to notice mm-hmm. the launches immediately. Mm-hmm. And another network of attack satellites, either laser or, I don't know, million pebbles. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all the different things that they were going to you know, yeah. attack. the. And that with this network in place then they would be able to monitor the surface of the earth at all times, all places, multi-spectrum. And like what they're doing now with drones in Afghanistan and Yemen, mm-hmm. they'd be able to do with satellites mm-hmm. on a clear day. Anyhow, mm-hmm. that instead of, day, very right, good point. instead of, uh, you know, having a drone hovering over mm-hmm. and waiting for this guy to leave the wedding and mm-hmm. blow up his car, they could blow it up from space. Mm-hmm. Some guy sitting in a, mm-hmm. in a bunker and yeah, in well, Alabama. surveillance is, is another matter. And I think they do good jobs on surveillance. From satellites, yeah, yeah, but uh, they had they had that and have it, so I, I don't know why they needed to get all involved with this other. Well, for the attacks, aspect. the attack capability. Mm. The thing that I mean, whether that's mm. true or not, yeah. just with the drone situation, mm-hmm. the thing that scares me is that you know until this point in history, the the moment we're living in now, in order to. F- fight a war you had to motivate your population uh-huh. uh, generally with lies you know like yes. you know, the other yeah. the the dirty evil whatever yeah. it is that we want you to go kill yeah. and propaganda and all that stuff but you did need to raise an army you needed to get yeah. enough people yeah. riled up that they'd go do it now with the technology we have all you need is a couple hundred guys in a bunker outside of las vegas pushing mm-hmm. buttons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you don't need the cooperation or even the um the approval of your population that's pretty frightening yeah the leverage has gotten really yeah and that's a a, you know that's a quantitative leap from where we've ever been before as a species yeah Yeah. Yeah, it's very distressing so we better learn to get along yeah, how do you feel about that? Having been uh, involved in the technological, yeah. uh, um, I, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. it's like well, it's it, the only uh, only thing. Einstein said that 
everything's changed except the way we think or something like that <laughs> after splitting the atom. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Like it, I didn't, I don't remember that. Yeah. Quote. There's something uh-huh. I'm paraphrasing, but he sure. said something yeah. like now everything yeah. is different except the way we think. Yeah. And you know, that's yeah. what we have to change. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the, uh, to finish off, um, surveyor, I don't mean surveyor. The Landsat. Landsat. Yeah. Hmm. It changed. I, I also have equipment on surveyor, by the way, that went to the moon. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it, Nomi mentioned that. That was the oh. first soft landing on the moon? Right. Is that I was right? responsible for the transmitter. Really? The wow. design of the transmitter. But, that um, is amazing. Landsat uh, went... I, I've forgotten how many we finally launched, and, and most of them are still working. And... Um, of course, the equipment has just gotten so much better. Yeah, the, the arrays and things. Is it true that from a satellite they could like you know read your credit card number or no. something? No, it's <laughs> no. not that. No. How 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 exact is it? I mean, the stuff that's not well, top secret. The whole point of the Landsat was repetitive data, right? Multispectral, so you can see changes. And uh, you wanted. Um, Several pixels across any field you're trying to identify. Right, right. The the first one was a uh, hundred feet across the pixel, uh, and then we went down to thirty. Uh, I'm sorry, meters. Meters, thirty yeah. meters. Okay. But um, you could do better, but. The data, the just the uh, volume of the data, would defeat you. Right, but now that computing yeah. is so much advanced, I guess. Yeah, well, just uh, transmitting it down and collecting it and storing it. Yeah. So there's a a trade-off here by how many pixels you actually want to collect. <laughs> how often? Right. We chose 14 days. Yeah. Um. So how how often we paint the Earth right once every fourteen days. Ah, okay. So what happens is you you do a stripe, the Earth is turned. Ninety minutes later, you do another stripe, and then the next day you come back and do a stripe next to your first one here and next to your second one here, and you fill it in. Ah. And you do this. You can do this um, by choosing your orbit height. Right. By how far apart those are, because if they're not in geosynchronous orbit at the yeah. the twenty, mm-hmm. what was it, twenty two, twenty two thousand, twenty two thousand, uh, that's twenty two thousand feet, miles, miles. <laughs> yeah, that would be like on the top of Mount Everest, yeah. right? <laughs> or not, not quite. Even. Uh, uh, if they're if they're lower, as you were saying, because mm-hmm. you want the better optical uh, distance. Uh huh. How do you keep it in orbit? Are there engines, motors on it that keep thrusting it so it doesn't fall? You only have to do that. That's called station keeping. You only have to do that if you're in relatively low, low orbits. Right. And uh, in our industry, there have always been the people fighting for low orbits, like Belltel, and Hughes fighting for high orbits. <laughs> and uh, as you're in low orbits... I know all the all the arguments against them since I was a Hughes person. Right. Uh, you have actually wind drag. 
You know, there are a few molecules, a couple of molecules up there. Right. And so then you you do have a little jet, Uh, and you you keep, as you would tend to go lower. You just top it up occasionally. Right. Do a puff. Right. And then it stays stays Uh, up. All right. Good. Right. Because as there's drag, it tends to come down. Yeah. You know, the the first... And the reason it tends to come down is it slows it down. Yeah. And... As soon as you're going at a slower velocity, you got to get down to where that's in balance. Oh, I see. Right. So it's the velocity that dictates your height. Oh, interesting. Until so you got to keep the velocity up if there's drag pulling it down. Right. And when you calculate these things, are you measuring, uh, mathematically speaking, mm-hmm. you're, are you measuring from the center of the Earth or from yes, the surface? Yes, generally from the center. Because that's the center of the gravity that you're yeah, calculating yeah. from, right? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, interesting. And it turns out it doesn't really matter uh, how big the Earth is. It's the, the mass. So when you do it analytically first order, you consider all the mass at a point at the beginning. Right, as if it were a center, black hole center. or a neutron and, and star or something. And you don't really care where the surface is. Right. Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the Russians tended to like low orbits because they had much cruder equipment. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the electronics and all that. They were way behind us. But they were ahead of us on on um, the... the um, the rocketry? Rocketry, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Because more of the mm-hmm. Nazis went to the Soviets? Because the uh, best rocketry uh, scientists were... were German, s- yeah. Yeah, Germans uh, in that. They did scoop them up. Yeah. Uh, there was a Russian who came in to... When I was doing in the early stages of Landsat, and we showed them around, mm. and uh, he said to me... Uh, we we have to have the big rockets because we can't make your your nice electronics. Right, they're they, putting up more weight. So what yeah. they they would actually have circuitry in bottles, <laughs> in great big bottles, because they they um, they didn't have our our foams and things like that, whereby mm-hmm. we could do them on the earth and mm-hmm. then put them up there. Strange. That must yeah. have been an interesting afternoon. Yes. Because that was at the height of yeah. the Cold War, and you're yeah. showing a guy around a top-secret installation. Not really the height. It yeah. was the end. Oh. That ending. And the Japanese, similarly, they they did everything electronically because they didn't have the... Uh, they were at the other end of right. the Right. So they were very good at miniaturization, mm-hmm. but they couldn't launch a damn thing yeah. themselves. And yeah. uh, the part of the... The model that I had um, depended upon a very accurate mechanical scanner. Mm. And when I first started this, I went to our house inventor, who was really an interesting person. He was a mechanical genius. I'll bet. So this is your in-house inventor at Hughes Aircraft. Right. What a job. Webb Webb Howe. What a job. He was marvelous. And so I said to him... I wanted a mirror that would be linear. If you if you take a mirror on a spring and flip it like this, it'll give you the the angle versus time will be sinusoidal. 
Mm. So that means each pixel will have a different dwell time. Depending each upon pixel will have a different dwell time. So the time uh, to where sweep, it hits the the mirror. Time to sweep through a pixel uh-huh. will vary. The if you draw a sine wave like that, yeah, it's going fastest here where it crosses. Uh-huh. That would uh, that would correspond to the center of the scan, and then when you got to the outsides of the scan, it would be slow. So you'd have a lot of time on those pixels. Oh, I see. The more time on the pixel, the better signal to noise ratio. The clearer that pixel right. is. Right. And you'd have to keep compensating in the... And we didn't have that kind of computation. So you wanted a mirror where you wouldn't have to do that no, to compensate for that straight sign. Like right. that. So what did he tell you? Is, is, does so such he a thing said, exist? let me think about it. No, it didn't exist. So he'd have to shape a mirror that would compensate for a sine wave somehow? It would, yeah. It would what, have what the form did, of a sine wave? What he did was fix it so it banged. And so you'd... You'd uh, drive the mirror, bang it, have it bang against the bumper, and then go back. <laughs> uh-huh. And so bumper to bumper, it would just go steadily. You'd give it a bang, and then it would go, uh, the rate, the angle rate would be a straight line. Uh-huh. And then you'd bang it back, and it would be a straight line. <laughs> but didn't that cause you problems with maintaining accuracy? Well, you're, not you're, the way he did it. He, he was marvelous. Let me get, bring you something. <laughs> Ginger has just brought... Oh, my God. This is a model of the mirror in question. Yeah. Wow. And so it would go back and forth like this. I will take a picture of this yeah. that will be on Actually, my the, website. This is not like the, like the other. Pardon me a minute. I'm going to have to run in here and I'll be back. Yeah. Uh, All right, we're we're back. Ginger's mm-hmm. back with us, and we were just talking about how they essentially have been using the designs uh, that you worked on thirty five uh-huh. years ago until when? Last February, did you? Last say? February, they launched the next generation, the next generation design, generation. and it is all solid state. Doesn't have any any, any uh, moving parts, or, any moving yeah, parts, or anything yeah. because everything, all of the uh, the um, circuitry has gotten so much more sophisticated and so much smaller yeah, yeah. that they can do the whole thing across instead of uh, I had uh, I had did six lines at a time right and as the lines um, scanned across with that silly mirror uh, then it w- the return from each um, Detector was sampled, right, right, and digitized and sent down, and right. then reconstructed. And so now you're just getting the pure now, digital data. Well, this directly. one, yes, they can. Um, how many uh, elements cross? It's um, they're keeping the same format because the users were accustomed to it, right, and so. As that spacecraft goes along in orbit, they have a whole row of detectors all the way across. And so it's, um, 
13 degrees is the overall swath, and um, it's 13 degrees divided by 10 microradians. <laughs> so it's 13 times 57 uh-huh. gets you into... You've already lost radians. me. Anyhow, there are a lot of them. <laughs> that's why. That's why God invented calculators. <laughs> right. <laughs> or someone. Exactly. God was at Texas Instruments, wasn't he? Yeah. Isn't that where he worked? Well, uh, Nomi actually, mentioned that you met Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Where and how did, did that happen? Well, the somebody at NASA had the bright idea of getting. I don't know how many people there were, hundred or so people together. Uh, what did they call it for a symposium? Where the idea was that they'd have a variety of people and push them all together for a week and see what would come out of it. Oh, wow. I think the answer is nothing, but <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> some pregnancy probably. So I was invited. <laughs> Fred Pohl, do you know who he is? Uh-uh. Science, uh, science fiction, uh, as was Clark. Right. They were the two science fiction. Was Isaac people. Asimov in the crowd? No, he wasn't around. Yeah. Pohl, I, I got to know Pohl pretty well because we both liked scotch and sat up and talked and drank. We uh, we were in the same suite. Uh-huh. It was on Sea Island, by the way. Where is Sea Island? It's off uh, South Carolina, or oh. it off Georgia. Oh, okay. Anyhow, it's over there. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, used just for that sort of thing. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, it was really interesting. There were a lot of luminaries ahead of, um, of um, the Air Force uh, lab down here, aerospace. Hmm. Corporation was there getting. Right. And uh, I came back and I wrote down all the names I could think of. I think I have them scribbled on a piece of paper in there. There were a lot of very mm. must have been uh, sort of luminaries. Some good, interesting conversations at the bar, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. yes definitely. In fact, it was funny. We, we had been having uh, some talks all day and... Um, Toward the end of the day, Getting, who was head of aerospace, was kind of restive. And he got up and said to his people, Come on, it's time to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the good old days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, we've been go. I've Mm -hmm. taken way more of your time than I anticipated. I'm sorry Uh about that, but I'm just fascinated. (laughs) I don't care if anyone ever listens to this, I'm just having fun. but like to uh, wrapping it up, I guess mm-hmm. I, I sort of want to like get back to where we started. I, uh-huh. uh, which is, yeah, and this is my bias. Is is there any insight into uh, eternal questions that can be gleaned from mathematics? Is there anything that we can know about? The nature of life, life after death, what happens, the nature of, of consciousness from mathematics, or is that a completely different? Oh no, I, I think uh, definitely science is going to have more and more of these answers. This is why I 
can't really believe in supernatural things. I think we will know more and more as time goes by. Right. But will we ever know the essential things? You know, like, for Mm -hmm. example, in... in, in uh, astrophysics, that, that, okay, uh, and I'm just taking people's mm-hmm. word for it that they've gotten to the Big Bang and they know it uh-huh. all started with this yeah. explosion and everything's been expanding since yeah. then and that explains the frequency of this and the spectrum of that and blah, 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 blah. But what was before the Big Bang? I don't uh-huh. hear anyone talking about that. So uh-huh. it, it always it, it feels to me that science, technology, and all these uh-huh. things get to a certain point, and they can't ever go past that point. Oh, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think it is a continuum, and I think we'll just always know more and more. Right. Uh, in in smaller increments. Right, and you and you uh-huh. think eventually we get to the point where we start to get answers to these. I suspect Deeply so. Deeply philosophical questions. I suspect so. I, I think in order to get a feeling for that, you have to put yourself back in the uh, coming out of the Dark Ages mm. and uh, try to imagine how people felt then about these things that to us are so esoteric as the Big Bang Theory. Right. Yeah, you're right. And so in those, they didn't it'll know just how. be a little more and a little more. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it'll ever end. Yeah. Do you think? I think we'll end before we get there. Well, that's what I was going to ask I'm you. I'm afraid what, of that. How but, do you feel with your mm-hmm. years of experience mm-hmm. and insight into yeah. so many different realms? Um, how do you feel? Are you hopeful for the future of the species? Well, you're, the planet? you're asking me way out of my expertise uh you could say much better you you seem to know a lot of psychology and anthropology and things like that that's what's involved all i've got is the sense to ask somebody like you (laughs) (laughs) not not necessarily as a Mm -hmm. scientist just as someone who's been paying attention for a long time yeah Uh, they're not things i think about a lot so i'm not you I'm try, not too good a person to ask. Uh, you try to keep focused on more more specific things, more It's just that they're easier for me. These are hard things you're saying. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I sometimes wonder uh, I I sort of have the sense that we're at the end of a party. And so I mm-hmm. I I end up feeling in mm-hmm. a sense, I don't care. I'm. What, what's uh-huh. the phrase? Somebody used a phrase I liked. Uh, uh, tragic optimist. I think it was the phrase. Hmm. Like mm-hmm. I think it's all going to end badly pretty soon, but mm-hmm. I don't think it really matters ultimately. You know. That sort of summarizes my feelings. Yeah, that's pretty that, good. Well, yeah. Feel free to use it. I, it's not mine, <laughs> yeah. so I stole okay. it. You can have it. Okay. Tragic optimist. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it's. It definitely feels like things. I'm working on this mm-hmm. book. I think I may have mentioned you called no. "Civilized to Death." Uh huh. So I, I feel uh-huh. like we're at the end uh-huh. of the road as far as civilization oh, dear, you goes. You are a pessimist. <laughs> well, yeah. I consider myself a realist, but uh, okay. they always say that, don't they? Uh, okay. Those pessimists. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a trifle more optimistic, just based on history, because we've been so down. To take the dark ages and we do come out of it 
So, yeah, I, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. I uh, I tend to to try to avoid these topics with friends who have kids. Yes, because they need to be hopeful, and I don't yes. want to. I don't want to yeah. plant any seeds of doubt. Okay, despite what I may think. Well, that's an altruistic approach. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know you have kids, so I yeah. just broke my rule, but well, they're they're adults, so Yeah, yeah. right. Well, listen, thank uh-huh. you. Thank you so much for doing this. I really well, appreciate you I found the time. conversation very interesting. Ah, good. Thank you, mm-hmm. so did I. He said, "Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say." You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.